Good morning, Lighthouse Baptist Church. Let's go ahead and say a word of prayer together. Dear Lord, today is hard. Today's a hard day. This week's been hard for us. But we thank you, God, that we're not waving our hands trying to get your attention. We thank you that you're closer than our nearest breath. God, we thank you that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. You're always watching after us. You're always looking over us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you're here for us, that you're God with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You never abandon us. God, despite how we're feeling and how sad we are, we know that you still have something to say to us today. So, Lord, I pray that we will listen. God, I pray that you will encourage us through your word today. God, I pray that you will speak it into our hearts and that we'll carry it with us throughout the week and throughout our lives. Lord, please speak through me today. We love you, Lord. Your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to our passage today. Our passage today is Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. So Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. So it says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Well, as I mentioned last week, we're currently in a series called Asking for a Friend. Now, we all have 
questions and we all have questions that we're kind of embarrassed to ask. And so that's where the idea of asking for a friend comes from. Uh, my friend was wondering, you know, you say what you were actually wondering. Now, of course, we should not be embarrassed to ask these questions because guess what? We're all asking these questions. Whether you realize it or not, every single one of us has these questions. So as we ask these questions, we should ask them, number one, prayerfully, and number two, as a church family. That's what we're here for. At least that's part of what we're here for, is to ask these questions and be there for each other as we look at the answers to these questions. So the question that we're asking today is a very pertinent one, especially this week. Our question is, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? Well, I remember, gosh, it, it didn't really feel like it was six years ago, but in 2015, I remember seeing that there was this kind of controversial interview that Stephen Fry gave. Now, I, I'm kind of assuming most of y'all don't know who Stephen Fry is. Now, if you lived in England, you probably would know who he is because over there, he's a comedian and he's an actor, so he's pretty much a celebrity over there. And one other thing you should know about Stephen Fry is that he's an atheist and he's very, uh, I guess you can use the word outspoken about his atheism and um, very vocal about it. And so when he gave this interview back in 2015, it got a lot of attention because when the interview started, the person doing the interview asked Stephen Fry, he said, suppose it's all true and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What would Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? And Stephen Fry, he responded this way. He said, I will basically say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It is utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. <laughs> so you can imagine why that caught a lot of attention and why it was pretty controversial when he said that. Now, the problem is not that Stephen Fry was asking why God would allow suffering. That's not the problem. The problem is that Stephen Fry assumes that he has all the information that he needs to make that specific judgment about God. And in reality, we don't have all the specific information that we need. That's why being disciples of Jesus requires some trust on our part. Look, for us, we see the world as a stage. When Stephen Fry looks out in the world, he sees the stage. But what he doesn't realize and what the Bible tells us is that there is a backstage. There's a backstage. In other words, there's things affecting what's on stage that we don't see. Now, what the Bible does, or at least part of what the Bible does, is it peels back the curtain just enough for us to get some kind of idea of what's going on backstage. And so the Apostle Paul, he gives us a little bit of an idea of what's going backstage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says this, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in other words, when we say, this world is all I can see, Paul says, no, there's a lot. There's a war, there's a battle going on in the heavenly realms that you don't realize, but it does affect you. It's in the backstage, it affects what's happening on stage. Now, when I was in seminary, uh, I wasn't as familiar with one of my favorite authors. And y'all know he's one of my favorite authors because I always quote him, C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. But in seminary, I hadn't really read much of his work at all. Now, I remember I, I went to one of my friend's apartments and I picked up uh, a book that he owned by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Have y'all ever heard of that book, The Screwtape Letters? When I read what The Screwtape Letters was about, I thought, this is very bizarre. I have to read this book because... What the Screwtape Letters are about is it's basically written, well, it's written by C.S. Lewis, but it's written from the perspective of a demon. And it's a series of letters written by that specific demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And so C.S. Lewis, he knows, and we know that the Bible says demons can communicate, they can talk. So C.S. Lewis wondered, what are they saying to each other? You know, if, if one demon was trying to keep a person from knowing and being with God, what would he say to another demon? If he was trying to instruct another demon in keeping someone from God, how would they strategize about that? What would they say? And so C.S. Lewis, as hard as it was on him to put his mind in that area, he decided to write a book to help us kind of see how the enemy thinks and how he tempts us. And so remember, this is written from their perspective of a demon, so it's not going to speak about God in very glowing and positive terms. But this passage, I remember when I read this, it's really stuck with me. And I've shared it with some of y'all before, but I want to share it with you again. It says, or Screwtape says, to us, demons, the devil, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which God demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale, will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. Now, that might have sounded confusing. I think what he says next will make it more clear what he's saying. This is what I want you most to hear. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Wow. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. This quote, I believe, helps us to understand the passage that we're looking at today. And the passage that we're looking at today, I believe, helps us to better understand what God has to say to that answer of, God, why do you allow suffering? So actually, our two points 
Usually I give about like a three-point sermon. Today we just have two points. And our two points come from that quote of we are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. So the first part of that quote is our first point. We have an enemy that wants to consume us. You have an enemy that wants to feed on us, wants to consume us. I know that sounds so weird. Let me show you how our passage shows us that. So the first question that we have to ask is, what was the root cause of this crippled woman's suffering? I mean, we know that she was crippled, but that was just a symptom. What is the root of her suffering? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 16. He says, this woman who has been bound by Satan for 18 long years. He says, Satan is at the root. He's behind the suffering of the world. Now, you may say, well, okay, I know Satan is behind suffering, but Cody, you still haven't answered the question. Because the question was not, what's the root of suffering? The question was, why does God allow suffering? Why would God allow Satan to inflict harm and pain and suffering on me? Now, I have an answer, but I have to warn you, you probably won't like the answer. But we have to be honest about the answer that the Bible gives if we're going to really address the problem at hand. The Bible refers to Satan in some pretty strange ways. There's certain things that it calls Satan that when you read it, you say, did I read that right? Did it actually say that? Think about what Paul referred to Satan as. Paul said that Satan is the God of this world. What? The God of this world? What did Jesus call Satan? He called Satan the prince or ruler of this world. What? Satan is the ruler of this world? Satan is the God of this world? How could that possibly be? Well, Satan is not the ruler of this world or the God of this world because he was ever meant to be the ruler of this world or the God of this world. But he's the ruler of this world and he's the God of this world because the world has submitted to him as its God and submitted to him as its ruler. Now, the world would never say, I've submitted to the rule and the work of Satan. But the world will go ahead and submit to his rule and his work. We see that with the synagogue leader here. Now, of course, he would never say, I'm submitting to the rule and work of Satan. But do you see how he is submitting to Satan? On the Sabbath, when people are not supposed to work, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you know, Pharisees would have likely been, the synagogue leaders, have added all these extra rules that help them, that bring attention to them, but of course, they're not willing to carry them out themselves. And so he essentially says, on the Sabbath, God's work should not be done. This woman should not be healed. But he's totally fine with Satan's work being done on that day. He's totally fine with this woman being confined and bound to her infirmity. And Jesus said, if you really actually believed that this was about God's rule, if this was actually really about the Sabbath, then you would not be leading your ox or your donkey out to get water. But as it is, you're fine with breaking your rules as long as, as, long as it benefits you. 
not as long as it benefits someone else, which means what? He's being selfish. He's, by resisting God's rule and God's work, he's submitting to Satan's rule and Satan's work. And throughout the Bible, we see that suffering is really our fault. Suffering is really our fault. Why? Because we have submitted ourselves to someone who wants to hurt us. We've submitted ourselves to someone who wants to hurt us, and God has allowed us to do so. He's respected our decision and said, okay, I'm about to read you a pretty long passage, so buckle up. I know this is going to be long, but you really need to pay attention to this. And I really tried to edit it and make it shorter, but you're going to see later why I couldn't edit it. I have to read a whole passage. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. And in this passage, Paul shows us why we are in the condition that we are in. So he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So he's saying people are wicked, but people know that God calls them to a different standard, so they're without excuse. And he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than, than their creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So Paul says, it's easy to say, yeah, sin and suffering is in our world because the world is wicked. 
Paul says, no, it's not just you and the wicked world. It's just the wicked world because you are part of the wickedness of the world. I couldn't shorten that passage for us because if I did, I would just be picking and choosing from a huge list of sins. And the reason that passage is so long is because the list of sins is so long. And you may not have been able to acknowledge or say, I struggle with some of those sins. But if you're a living, breathing human being, then of course, at some point on, on that list, you said, yes, I've committed that shameful, sinful act. I've, in other words, submitted at least one point in my life to the rule and the work of Satan. Did you hear how many times Paul said that God gave us over to what we chose to live for? Did you hear that? Now, we may not say, I'm choosing to live for Satan, but here's what Paul is saying. What we choose to live for shows who we have chosen to live for. Do you realize that? What you choose to live for shows who you choose to live for. So the real question is not, why does God allow us to suffer? The real question is, why have we given ourselves over to the one who wants us to suffer and expected to not suffer? How does that make any sense? How does it make any sense to say, by God, I'm going with the one who wants to hurt me, but don't let any suffering come to me. That doesn't make any sense. And that, that is what we do. Now, please don't misunderstand me because I know at this point, it's very easy to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that every time you suffer, it's because of a personal sin of yours. I'm not saying that. That's not true. Now, that is something that was assumed a lot of times in the Bible, right? In the book of Job, which we talked about earlier. Remember, Job's friend said, you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. When the disciples and Jesus passed by a blind man, the disciples said, Jesus, what did this man or his parents do that he was born blind? They assumed because he's suffering, he must have sinned to deserve it. Now, certainly, there are times when you do suffer from your sin because sin has consequences, of course. But think about this. Jesus suffered more than any of us, and he never sinned. Well, I'm not trying to say just because you're suffering, it means that you sin. What I'm trying to say is that if you live in a world infested with and full of sin, how could you expect to never be affected by it? How could you expect to never suffer? And how could you expect to never live in a world full of sin if you have submitted to the rule and the work of the one who most wants to harm you, who wants to feed on you, who is empty and would be filled with you? Because sin is in this world, the world is not the way it should be. It's not, because sin is in the world. We are, like this crippled woman, bound up, tied up by Satan. So the question is, who can help us? Who can help us? Well, the answer is the one who helped the crippled woman. And who was that? Jesus. That's the one that can help us. Which leads us to our second point. We have a God who wants to feed us. Yes, we do have an enemy who wants to consume us, but our passage also shows us that we have a God who wants to feed us. So I said that Jesus wants to help us. So 
How does Jesus help us? Well, how did he help the crippled woman? He untied her. In verse 15 through 16, let's look at that again. After the synagogue leader got on to Jesus for healing the woman on the Sabbath, releasing her from her suffering, it says, The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Now, you see the comparison that Jesus has just made? He's compared what he's doing for this crippled woman and his people to what these people are doing for their ox and for their donkeys. How is he comparing them? Okay, let's look at this. He says, you on the Sabbath untie your ox and your donkey from the stall. I, just now on the Sabbath, untied this woman who is bound by Satan. And you lead your ox and your donkey out to feed them and fill them up. And I untie my people, not just to untie them, but to lead them out to feed them. In other words, you release your animals, not just to release them, but to fill them up. And I came not just to release my people, not just to heal them physically, but to lead them spiritually to me. Not just to water, but to living water. Why does Jesus untie us? To feed us, to fill us up, to give us what we need. Whereas the enemy wants to take from us, God wants to give to us. He loves to feed his people. And we see it constantly throughout the Bible. And we literally see it in John chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So the question is, why was Jesus able to feed 5,000 people and still have 12 baskets full of leftovers? He is full and flows over. He's full and flows over. And when we come to him, we experience his fullness flowing over to us and feeding us. Now, you might say at this point, Cody, that's great. That's great. 
that Jesus wants to feed us. But what does Jesus feeding us have to do with our suffering? Everything. It has everything to do with your suffering. Think about it this way. The crippled woman suffered for 18 years. Have you ever suffered with one thing for 18 years for that long? Maybe you have. A lot of times, maybe you haven't suffered for 18 years, but it felt like 18 years, right? Now, for this woman to suffer from being bent over and unable to straighten up on her own must have felt like an eternity. But she suffered for 18 years. She had no idea that when she came to Jesus and gave her or gave him her suffering, that 2,000 years later, we would be reading about it at Lighthouse Baptist Church. She suffered for 18 years. She did not realize that if she just gave it to Jesus, yes, it wouldn't erase her past suffering, but God would use it to feed and to help and encourage people for thousands and thousands of years. I've heard one preacher put it this way. God does give Satan rope to hurt us, but he only gives us enough he only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. And we don't always know why we're suffering. Maybe there's no reason why we're suffering. But we can know that God will use it. There's stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't realize yet. And for this woman, God was able to transform her suffering into hope and praise for others. Even in that immediate moment, people were praising and worshiping God for the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. Recently, I read a book by Elizabeth Elliot called Suffering is Never for Nothing. And this book is phenomenal. I really highly recommend it. Such a good book. A lot of times, I had to put the book down and say, wow, that was so good. And this passage I'm about to read to you is one of those moments where I read it and thought, I never thought of it that way. But Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, She said, I have never forgotten what a missionary speaker said in chapel when I was a student. She spoke about the little boy bringing his lunch to Jesus. And she said, if my life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude when a loaf would satisfy only a little boy. Let me read that again. If my life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude when a loaf would satisfy only a little boy. You may be broken and you may be suffering, but if you offer the Lord your suffering, you will be amazed how much he can feed you and feed others through it. He did it for the crippled woman And he can do it for you, too. Now, we can talk about suffering all day long. We can talk about this all day long. But you will never understand what God is doing about suffering and how he feels about your suffering until you see how much he has suffered for you. All of this is just talk until we see how much he has gone through to rescue you and save you from suffering. So what 
What has he suffered? How has he suffered for you? Well, notice that Jesus gave this woman some insight into what she suffered. He gave her some idea. He said, yes, you were bound for 18 years because Satan bound you. But when Jesus says, woman, come forward, when she gets there, he doesn't say, okay, here's why you're suffering and this and this. He doesn't give her a detailed explanation or detailed argument for why we go through suffering. No, what he said was, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Now, the question is, why doesn't God give us a perfect argument for suffering? Why didn't Jesus give her a perfect argument for suffering, why she was suffering? Because God knows that that's not actually what we need. God knows that what we need is not a perfect argument for why we're suffering. And what we need is a perfect person. What we need is a perfect person. And in Jesus, that's what she received. And in Jesus, that's what we receive also. Jesus wants to untie us and lead us to the food that we really need. Himself. Himself. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus compares himself to food? Have you ever realized that? In John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. In John 7, 37 through 38, he said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus said, I untie you and lead you out to feed you. And you find out when you're fed that I am what you are meant to be fed on. I am what feeds you. I am what waters you. Just as Jesus had to break the bread to feed 5,000 people, he had to be broken to feed us. Do you see that? Do you realize that? Do you see why he had to suffer to save us from our suffering? Because his body was broken and because his blood was poured out, he can do that. He can feed not just that one woman. He can feed all of us. What I'm trying to say is that God is full, but the only way he could fill you up was to empty himself. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just untie you. He led you out to give you the water and the food that you need. But you might say, okay, if Jesus came to give me what I need and I have him, I have what I need, why am I still suffering? Why? Why am I still going through that? Well, let's look at what Jesus said before he left the synagogue. Before Jesus left the synagogue, he told two parables in verses 18 through 21. It says, Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. What is Jesus saying with these two parables? Jesus, he's saying, I know, I know the world is not the way it should be. I know, I know. But like a seed planted in the ground, you can trust that my kingdom will grow to take over. 
and like yeast mixed in flour, you can trust that my kingdom will fill up the entire world. When Jesus entered into the world, that seed was entering into the world. That yeast was entering into the flour. And if we just go up to a little seed and say, why aren't you fully grown up into a big tree? Or if we look at bread that's going to be made and say, hey, how come you haven't risen up all the way yet? Well, then, of course, we'll be impatient. We'll say, why aren't things the way that they're supposed to be? And Jesus says, I am making things the way that they're supposed to be. I started it when I came and when I went to the cross, and I'll finish it when I come back. But you'll have to be patient because you do live in a world that is not yet the way that it should be. But you can trust and you can hope and you can believe and expect that one day it will be the way it should be and you will be the way that you should be. And we can be filled with hope because we know that Jesus will fix all that was broken and make it right. And we can also have hope because we know that he will banish for eternity the one who has tied us up. Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 31 through 32. He said, when he was about to go to the cross, he said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm untying you from Satan and I am bringing you and all people to myself. In other words, what I did for the crippled woman on a small scale, I'll do for all who believe in me on a large scale. And when you believe this, when you trust in this, you'll still suffer, you'll still hurt, you'll still cry, you'll still experience pain as long as you live in this world, that's going to be true. But when you believe that the enemy will be banished, and when you believe that the kingdom of God will grow and fill the earth and fill you, then and only then can you say along with the Apostle Paul what he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he said, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be fulfilled in us. Let's pray. Lord, we are hurting and broken people. But today, we remember that you became hurting and broken for us to make us whole. Dear God, we have faith, we have hope, but God, who hopes for what they already had? God, we hope because we don't have it yet. But we know that one day we will have it. In other words, God, we will have a fixed world. We will have fixed bodies. There will be no more weeping, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more need for the sun or the moon to lighten the day or the night because you will be our light and you'll be with us. God, and we're excited about that. We trust that. We believe that. That's what gets us through all of our suffering, God. We don't need a perfect argument for why we're suffering. We need a perfect person to be with us in our suffering. And in Jesus, you gave us that perfect person. You're God with us, and you always will be God. So like the boy bringing you 
this loaf. We bring you our pain, our suffering, our hurt, and we know that you will do things with it that we can never imagine doing on our own. God, we give them to you. That's all we can do is just give them to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much that you set us free from our infirmity. We thank you that the woman straightening up and praising God, that is what you began in us, and that is the work that you will finish in us. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much that you're the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of love, the God of joy, the God of healing, the God who feeds us. And you feed us not just with food, not just with water, but with yourself, with life. And that's why we can have life and life to the fullest. We love you, Lord. We thank you so, so much. No matter what happens, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.